0: You are listening to the Ridgewood Church Podcast on a sermon series that will take us through the Gospel of John entitled, Learning Jesus. You know, as consumers, so often, we are always looking for the next best thing. We move up from, you know, those terrible iPhone 8s to iPhone ten because the 8s aren't good enough. We, we go from cable to streaming. We move from a camping trailer to a RV, two-bedroom house to four-bedroom house, in, in a million different ways. We're always taking that next step. We want the best thing. And what Jesus is going to show us today in the sign that we're going to look at is that He is the greater gift. He is the best thing. And so we're going to learn today that we can believe in him, rely on him, and I would ask you to think about the priority of Jesus in your life so that you don't waste your life pursuing things that are less valuable than Jesus. Because when you embrace Jesus, you have an opportunity then to have eternal life, abundant life, hope, and a purpose. Because Jesus is The best thing. So let's take our Bibles, if you would, as we continue in our series in John called Learning Jesus and turn with me to John chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. John 2 verse 1, it's page number 887. If you want to take that Ridgewood app, you can download that as well and you can just press media and go right to the study guides for today's date. So this is the first of seven signs that are recorded in scripture of course jesus did many many miracles but these are the seven signs that point to his sonship messiahship and you'll notice that we've moved now from origins in this series which was the origins of the universe jesus as creator to the origins of his ministry now we're in a section on the signs and jesus is going to show us through these signs that he is who he says he is and in this particular sign He's going to usher in a new way that is better than the old way. And the scene is a village called Cana. It's about eight miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And the sign itself is significant. The miracle is amazing. His power is seen. He turns water into wine. So let's take a look at the text together. Let's start in verse 1, and we'll read through the narrative, and then we'll unpack some of its amazing truth. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. So it must have been another amazing moment in the ministry of Jesus. Here he is in Cana, and he's doing the first of the seven signs. So here are the signs we're going to look at in this segment of our John series. And each one will have a particular meaning. Each one will go to the power of Christ. Here we're changing water into wine. Next week, the healing of the royal official's son from miles away. Then the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. We'll see Jesus feed 5,000. We'll see Jesus walking on water, healing a man born blind, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. These signs are meant to convince us that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God. And so it's exciting to walk through them. And so let's start with that basic point and that basic premise of what the signs are for. The signs were intended to prove that Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus claimed to be Messiah. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be God. And so these signs are to elicit belief that we might believe in him, which is the purpose of this gospel. If you look at verse 11, you see the purpose there. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He's manifesting his glory to elicit belief. John talks about this goal in 2030, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in Him, we can have life in His name. That's the point of the gospel. And so John didn't write everything down. He makes it clear at the end of the gospel that if I were to do that, the way he put it, there wouldn't be enough books in the world. But he did write down what God told him to write down through the power of the Holy Spirit, that would point to Jesus being who he says he is. And so let's just walk through this and then unpack it. So we're going to start in verse 1. The wording here, the third day, probably means three days after calling Philip and Nathanael to be disciples. And you can read about that back in 143 through 51. It would have taken a couple of days then for Jesus to walk from Jericho, literally up to Cana, in that culture... Weddings lasted seven days, so there would have been a lot of food. There would have been a lot of preparation. There would have been a lot of guys missing a lot of football games for seven days. So if it took Jesus two days to walk there, it's possible that things were already underway, and that's why the wine was running low. Verse 1 also tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. She may have located from Nazareth to Cana. She was likely a widow at this time because there's no mention of Joseph. So she would have been dependent on Jesus as the mother of Jesus and that plays a role in the story. Then in verse 2, John informs us that there were disciples present, likely Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, who was from Cana, and then of course John, who records the events. And given that this group were all there, likely The marriage had something to do with family or relatives. So now, in verses 3 through 5, things get really interesting, and there's a a very, very intriguing exchange between Mary and Jesus that helps us to see the transition of the old way of relating God to the new way of relating to God. And here's that in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman... What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's talking there about his death and his resurrection. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So it's not inconceivable that Mary may have been responsible for the catering of this event because she's the one that notices that the wine was running out. So she turns to her son for help. She probably wasn't expecting a miracle, just some help with the wine but actually this is an extremely important moment in the journey of jesus because in verse 4 his words seem harsh woman what does this have to do with me what's happening here is jesus is changing the landscape he's setting new rules even with his mother and what we're going to find out here is that Jesus wholeheartedly pursued his Father's will. His mission was about his Father's will to his Father's glory. And he was intent on following that. And it wasn't a human agenda. The term here, woman, would seem impolite. You know, I would recommend, guys, that you don't call your wife woman. It's probably not going to go over that well. Woman, do you have dinner ready? Never again, she would say. Of course, in our house, I do all the cooking, so it would be a reverse scenario. Um, not really. But even though it wasn't a impolite word in that culture, the interesting thing is it does have distance to it. It's not a warm term. The closest thing we might have in our language would be the word ma'am. So it's not the, the endearing term that Jesus could have used. It is the same term that Jesus used from the cross when he was addressing his mother, but it's the question itself that's interesting. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And that can't be taken any other way than a measured rebuke of Mary. It could read, if you translated it from the Greek, you have no claims on me, or why do you involve me? And what Jesus is doing here, he's declaring at the very beginning of his ministry that he would not be doing his ministry with any human manipulation, with any human agenda. He was about the Father's will. He was distancing himself from his mother. And now Mary, for her part, if you look at verse 5, she shrugs off the rebuke and she says, do whatever he tells you that one can only imagine how difficult this would have been for Mary. Here she is, the one who who raised Jesus, nursed him, taught him to walk, and now Jesus is is the provider for her. But Mary was a wise woman. And I think she understood the ramifications of who Jesus is, but still, this had to be hard. Theologian D.A. Carson elaborates on this. Now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains, to establish distance between them. And then he says, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provisions for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is establishing boundaries here. He's saying to Mary you have no rights over me anymore this is a new thing i'm now about the business of my father and in a real way mary and jesus are paying a cost already for this mission because the relationship is being set in a distance and mary must have hurt but she was willing to do it because she was also sold out to the mission of jesus And so as I read this, I thought to myself, what am I willing to forsake in order to get on board with who Jesus is? What am I willing to put aside to make Jesus the best thing, the number one thing in my life, like Mary was allowing Jesus to do here? And there are a lot of things that came to mind, and there are things that distract us. You know, we we get that house that we've always dreamed of, but... You know, we go in debt and we're all tied up in knots of stress and are we, are we willing to forsake that if we see that beginning to adversely affect our relationship with God? Or, or how about that perfect job that you land and you think, man, this is going to be fantastic, we're going to have plenty of money, but you can see that it's starting to put a wedge between you and your family and you can see that it's not helping you in your relationship with God. Are you willing to forsake that? These are hard questions. Or how about the, the, what Jesus had to deal with, relationships? You may have friends that are not good for you spiritually. Are you willing to say no to your friends and yes to God? Or are you willing, too, to look at what you're watching on your devices, what you're taking in? What television shows are you binge-watching? Are they helpful to you spiritually? And if they're not, are you willing to say no for the mission? In order to make Jesus your number one thing, to honor him, to enjoy him, and to allow him to abide more deeply in you. These are the hard questions that are being asked here, because we can see Mary and Jesus going through this process. They were both intent to not settle for less, because Jesus is the best thing, and Mary knew that. She understood that. So Jesus is wholeheartedly pursuing his Father's will. He's he's manifesting his glory through these signs. But here's the next thing I want you to understand, that the sign itself, yes, it was an amazing miracle, but the sign itself had significance. It painted a contrast between the old and the new. And so what he's doing with the water and wine has deep significance. Let's look at that and find out how. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So I want you to notice that these are not these small jars that we see sometimes in our Sunday school curriculum. These are 20, 30-gallon jugs. I shouldn't even call them jugs. They're more like concrete holders. So here's a picture of one in Israel. You can see the size of it as compared to this gentleman here who was very glad to be in our picture this morning. But look how big that is. So this is what we're dealing with, six of these. Now, here's what really matters is that these are made of stone because these are not wine holders, These are for Jewish ceremonial washing. So the stone is better than earthenware because it doesn't contract uncleanness. So if you were at the wedding feast, people would have been using this to maybe wash their hands or wash the utensils in order to keep the Jewish rites of purification. So Jesus takes these and decides, I'm going to make a point here. I'm going to use these holders to do my miracle. So what does he do? He orders them to fill it all the way to the brim. And that signifies the fact that this Jewish rite of purification is no longer needed. And what Jesus is saying by using these canisters is that he's going to bring a better way. There's no mistake he uses these. So put it this way, the rites of Jewish purification are no longer needed because Jesus is the purifier. Because Jesus is the one who can make us clean through a relationship with him. So this is a clear sign that a new era has come. It's quite amazing. It's actually very beautiful because we have the benefit now of this. Jesus is the best thing. And now, in the order of the wine, we can see it again. We see that the best came from, last so look again at verses 9 and 10 so now we understand the canisters but now we understand the order when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants did the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. And listen, there's no way to get around this. What this is saying is that most weddings, by the time it's seven days, a lot of people were inebriated. They could sneak in the poor wine. But the Bible doesn't ever say the disciples were drinking this like this or Jesus. It's just a fact of that culture. But then he says, you have kept the good wine until now. So not only was Jesus saving the groom and his family from massive embarrassment... Because they were responsible for serving all of the food and drink. He was doing something greater. He was introducing a new messianic age. So here's how it went normally at the wedding. You start with the good wine. You're in day three, day four, day five, day six. That's a long wedding. Wow, I can't imagine. But by the time they get to the end, they're on the bad wine. How Jesus does this is in the reverse. He starts with the lesser, the old covenant, and ends with the newer good wine, the new covenant. See that? So they're in these jars of Jewish purification, signaling. Okay, that was important, but now I've come. Fill them to the brim. We're done with those now. I'm going to show you. And then he takes this beautiful wine out of it. And says, We save the best for last. Jesus is the best thing. He's introducing a new age. So it's really important that we understand that backdrop to what's happening here. Now, what I'm not saying is that there's anything wrong with the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is inspired scripture. The Old Testament has a Morality that it sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament often. Jesus reads the Old Testament, the law, in synagogue. And the Old Testament looks forward to Messiah. So in no way are we saying this is somehow lesser. But the Bible is clear that that sacrificial system, that ceremonial purification and washing... It can't hold up to the real thing because that was a type of the Messiah. Messiah is here now, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we can be thankful that we live in an age, we get to enjoy the personhood of Messiah. We don't have to go through all of that ceremony. But this is inspired scripture. The Bible says that in, first, in 2 Timothy 2, 13, uh, rather 3, 16 and 17, the Bible is all God breathes. And it's helpful for rebuking and correction and training and righteousness. So the Old Testament is along with that. And so what the Bible is telling us here, what John is telling us, is that the new covenant is a new way to approach God. And we have the benefit of that in the church age. So now he comes to a close in this section. And he does this in verse 11. And he uses a little tool called an inclusio which is a literary device that signals the end of a section. And the words he uses here are Cana in Galilee. What, how this works is, in the first verse, he used the same term, Cana in Galilee. Now in verse 11, he's using the term Cana in Galilee, so that envelops the section. So we know that now he's at the end of this particular part of the narrative, and here's what he says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him so the disciples were watching this and what happened they came to belief jesus proves to be the sovereign creator and ruler of the material universe we can't miss the miracle itself miracle itself was amazing the miracle showed the majestic glory of jesus john had already shown us that he's the creator in john 1 1 through 5 And now we see him manipulating this wine. And it's the the sheer force of the miracle that brought the disciples to faith. And so when we're looking at our own lives, we see this, this Jesus who can move molecules around, who can change circumstances, who can command the weather, because he's the creator. He holds the universe together. And so, listen, he can heal. So keep on praying. He can create pregnancies. He can change circumstances. He can do whatever he thinks is best. So don't ever stop believing and praying. Now, in my life, I've prayed so hard for things, and sometimes the opposite of what I want happens. But you know what I believe? I believe that's God's best plan because the Bible's very clear on that. But I also know that when Jesus decides to do his thing, that there is nothing that can stop him. Nothing. Here, he takes water and turns it into not just wine, but the best wine. And so, that's amazing to watch the creator of the universe at work. And here he is proving his glory, pursuing the Father's will, and ushering in this brand new covenant. So what I want to just leave you with in the last couple of minutes this morning is this. I want you to embrace Jesus because he is the best thing for you. This isn't religiosity. This is moving to something that is real. This is abiding in our Savior, in our high priest. Move toward Jesus. So I'm just going to give you a couple of ways that you can do that this morning. The first I would say is this, in order to make Jesus the number one thing, in order to move toward him, follow his example and pursue God's will for your life. This is what Jesus was doing. Remember with Mary, he made it very clear, ma'am, the time of you being my mother and having that same intimate relationship is over. I'm going to pursue my father's will. People ask me all the time, "Well, I don't know, man. I don't know if, what God's will is for my life." Well, I don't find that to be a complicated question because I think the Bible is very clear. When we are walking with God, we are in God's will, and I don't think it's so much circumstantial, like where we live or what we do for a living. It's are we walking with God? Because when we're walking with God, the rest will play itself out. Henry Blockaby wrote that wonderful "Experiencing God" series. He said, We don't choose what we will do for God. He invites us to join Him where He wants to involve us. So, this is a gift that God gives us. What is God's will? That we walk with Him. So, pursue that in your life. Secondly, I would say this accept the advantages of the new covenant. Be glad that you live in the church age, and don't feel guilty that you live in the church age. Because this is a wonderful time to be alive. Because Jesus has ushered in the new covenant. I just want to read this to you real quickly from Jeremiah. This is the prediction of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. You can write that down. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. That is a preview of the new covenant written in our hearts. We are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is in us. And so Hebrews alludes to this. The author says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So we live in an era that the new covenant was ushered in by Jesus and it's better than the old way. So we are so fortunate. So what does that new covenant tell us? It tells us that we have new and better promises, that we have an inclination to obey God when we come to know Him in faith, that we have this firm relationship with God, that He will give us forgiveness of sin just for the asking. This is the new covenant that Jesus was ushering in. And so, in order to prioritize them in your life, stop striving to be this perfect person and enjoy the benefits of the new covenant. Because there is forgiveness and grace, and there is life without shame in the new covenant. And then I would just say this simply this is really, this point took me a long time to come up with. Believe. Believe that this is real. And it's not just for other people. It's for you. It's for me. That when Jesus turned water into wine, that was a scripture that was recorded that will last forever. And it's for you and me to look at and say, wow, this is new. This is different. This is exciting. This fuels my motivation to go out and tell others and to live for Jesus because I live under this amazing new church age, the new covenant. Believe in Jesus. Listen, you can spend your life pursuing all the things that we like to pursue, but those things are going to come up empty. The only thing really worth pursuing, the only person ultimately that is worth pursuing is Jesus because he's the best thing. So we're going to move to the Lord's table. I'd love you just to close your eyes just for a couple of minutes and meditate on this truth. What does it look like for you? to move toward Jesus, to acknowledge him as the best thing? Just ask God that question, and then I'll close in prayer. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.